Hey, Courtney. Hey, Ashley. Do you love hearing about true crime and history and other fun stuff? Oh, you know I do. Well, good, because that's what we talk about every week on the Cult of Domesticity podcast, so I'm glad that you enjoy it. Oh, I probably should have known that. Yeah, probably. (laughs) Tell them where to find us. Well, we're available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Podbean, and other fun places. New episodes come out pretty much every Thursday. So be there or be square. (laughs) (laughs) This is an American Crimecast production. Visit us at accproductions.org. And remember, everyone is innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. This podcast is part of the BombPod Media Network. Police Department and the Indiana State Police announced that the bodies of Jane C. Free, age 20, Mark S. Flemons, age 17, Daniel R. Davis, age 16, Ruthie Shelton, age 17, have been discovered late this afternoon in Johnson County, Indiana. It's one of the state's most infamous crimes, the kidnapping and killing of four Burger Chef workers in Speedway. The scene was never really processed as a crime scene. They were killed three different ways, shot, stabbed, and possibly beaten with a chain. This case takes absolute priority over all other matters at this time. Risa Jeffries can't forget losing her older sister. The day after she was buried was Thanksgiving. She was my only sister. I idolized her. I have two children alive and one in heaven. I honestly believe that it will never be solved. I would like to thank Michelle for requesting this episode right here. Uh, This episode is the 1978 Burger Chef murders in Speedway, Indiana. Uh, This kind of did go to the top of the list because I'm a little bit biased about Indiana cases since I'm an Indiana boy, and uh, this did take place just outside of Indianapolis. So thank you, Michelle, for requesting this. She actually went to school with uh, one of the victims, so... Um, I did agree to this before I realized that, uh, you know, the case had been covered before. Uh, I will say this. I did not listen to the other podcast episodes because I don't like that um, information clouding my information. I like getting all my own stuff. I know there are a couple podcasts that did it. So if you want to look into them, uh, you know, more power to you. Go check them out. Um, I'm sure they did uh, phenomenal jobs. I mean, everybody in this genre does a fucking great job for the most part. All right. Now, 
I will say this before we get going again. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Alright, I'm not here accusing anybody of anything. The way I'm going to do this is I'm going to state the facts. I'm going to state the timeline first. When we go into the theories and facts section where I give you a fuckload of more information that will probably make your brain explode because this is a fucking rabbit hole. Um, I will let you know what is hearsay, what is rumor, what is word on the street. I will let you know that shit because that does – you do have to take that into account, all right? Um, but this this case goes all over the place. I thought it was going to be a pretty short, easy episode as I started researching it. There's a lot of questions that started coming up during the investigation of this uh, where you have the state police, city police, and the county police, all three involved. Lots of miscommunication going on. Uh, lots, of, lots of theories about maybe cover-ups going on. You know, relatives being involved with cops, shit like that, all right? So, I'm not here to accuse anybody, but as you know, if somebody does a shitty fucking job at being a cop, then I will probably mention that. So, now that we've gotten all that shit out of the way, and I hope John Mellencamp doesn't sue me for, for playing, uh, because he's an Indiana boy too, by the way, for those of you who did not know, hope he doesn't sue me out of, you know... I hope he doesn't sue the shit out of me for playing that, but anyway. All right, on with the case. On the night of Friday, November 17th, 1978, in Speedway, Indiana, four employees were working at the local Burger Chef restaurant. They were assistant manager Jane Freed, age 20, who had recently transferred from the Plainfield uh, Burger Chef restaurant, Ruth Ellen Shelton, aged 18, Daniel Davis, aged 16, and Mark Flemons, aged 16. They were closing up the store that night, and at somewhere between 11 p.m. and midnight, a fellow employee comes back to visit. Apparently, he was meeting the victims there. They were all going to go out together that night. It was a Friday night. And he notices that the back door was open, and uh, the employees inside were gone. There was two purses left behind, and their coats were also left behind. So this employee or friend, whoever it was, who knew the victims, called the cops. The police show up. They discover that there is anywhere from 500 to $581 missing from the safe. Like I had mentioned, the purses were still there. There was no sign of a struggle. Their coats were still there. Now the police, because there was no sign of a struggle, apparently, just naturally assumed that the employees stole the money and went to party. Another reason they might have thought that is because there was several hundred dollars in change that was not stolen, along with their purses. So the cops say, oh, they probably just stole the money and went to a party. They call the manager up. Manager comes, locks everything back up. They call it a fucking night. Now the next morning, those employees were supposed to show up for work. They did not. 
It is at this point in time that the families know that the kids have not been home, so they alert authorities. At this point in time, the local police find out that something might be wrong. They go back to the burger chef. But it was already too late. The other employees that had gotten there to the burger chef had already cleaned everything up, which basically means that there was no evidence left behind because the cops naturally assumed that these young people stole the money to go out and party. Even though their coats were left behind in mid-late November in Indiana, which for those of you, I know some of you are like, ah, big fucking deal. Uh, Seriously, though, at night in Indiana in mid-late November, you're looking at 30 degrees. You're looking at anywhere from 30 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit. That is cold. You don't leave without your coats, all right? Also, not to mention that the purses were left behind. They didn't think that was fucking weird, all right? So the crime scene was already cleaned up by the employees who had arrived earlier that next morning, which would have been Saturday morning. Now, it is also stated that sometime on Saturday is when Jane's car is found just a few blocks away from the Speedway Police Department. Now, this vehicle supposedly was still not treated as a crime scene, even though these kids were reported missing. I, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and say this now if you think this is bad. This this investigation was probably the most fucked up I have encountered in a long time. And I know a lot of people out there in forums and, you know, Facebook and all that shit, they're all like, well, there's a bunch of Barney Fives and it was a small town and here's the deal, all right? Small town, big town. Don't give a shit. Crime rate's big, rate is low. I don't give a shit. Okay? At a certain point in time, common sense does have to play a factor. Okay? Now, we will touch base on why the police might have kind of looked the other way on some things a little bit later in the episode. But as for right now, just prepare to get a little bit more pissed off as we go. Now, when the car was found, like I had stated, it was a few blocks away from the police department. There was no forensic evidence taken. There was a couple of wrappers from the Burger Chef in there, and there were some cigarette butts that were taken from the vehicle as well. The driver's side door was locked. The passenger side door was not locked. This car also had, it was a fucking Vega. I don't even know who who made those pieces of shit, but um, um, but it did have manual locks. So at this point in time, the cops are like, okay, this must have been a robbery gone bad. Maybe one of the victims, you know, fought back. Maybe one of the victims recognized, you know, one of the perpetrators. Still, nothing's really going on. I mean, obviously they're scrambling. They're freaking out. Parents are fucking freaking out. Four people literally vanished within an hour. Okay? So that brings us to Sunday. Now, Sunday afternoon, some hikers hiking uh, right around off of Indiana 37, where it intersects with 700 East in Johnson County, 
this place where the bodies were found. It is about 40-minute drive south of Speedway or about 30 miles distance. Now, they find, you know, a pretty bad crime scene. Um, what they discover was that Ruth and Daniel were shot multiple times execution style. Jane Freed was stabbed twice in the chest with so much force that the second time she was stabbed, the handle broke off the knife. Now, Mark, his injuries are a little bit weird. It almost seems like he tried to run away. It is stated that he was athletic and very fast, um, but it is said that he tried to run away and possibly hit his head on a tree trunk. Now, we will look into this a little bit deeper uh, when we get into the facts and theories section, but... Some of his wounds look like he was beaten with chains. Mark didn't actually die from those injuries. He ended up choking on his own blood. The cops pretty much said if he would have landed about any other way, then he more than likely would have survived and they would have had a living witness. Unfortunately, that was not the case. You should know. You know, these bodies were found in a field, and they weren't all together. They were kind of spread out. Now, obviously, Ruth and Daniel were together. Jane was a little bit off to the side, and Mark a little bit further down. Now, here's where some more shit gets pretty interesting. Some of the officers at the scene of where the bodies were discovered claim that the state police moved bodies before the forensic team or the coroner had actually arrived. They did not rope off the crime scene, so you had three different departments there. That would include department vehicles, walking and driving all over the field, which would eliminate any kind of footprints, tracks, or even tire tracks for that matter. They were the Speedway Police, the Indiana State Police, and the Johnson County Police. That hurts the investigation a little bit as well. Now, the burger chef finds out what happened. They do close their doors for a little bit in respect for the victims, and they offer a $25,000 reward for any information leading to the arrest. And I will say this, burger chef, um, obviously they're not a restaurant that's around anymore. They got bought out by Hardee's, I think, in the very early 80s, very tail end of the 70s. Uh they did very well by the families. They, you know, helped with funeral costs. They did every single thing that they could. Now, the local Steak and Shake offered another $1,000 on top of that as a reward. And the following year, on September 15th, the state of Indiana finally approved another extra $1,000 as a reward. Why it took them almost a full year, I don't know. Now, obviously, this police investigation was pretty, pretty fucked up from the start, all right? But when the bodies were found, an eyewitness comes forward, and it is a young male who is with his girlfriend. Now, what he says is about 10 p.m., he spots two suspicious people in a 1973 to 1975 green van with bubble windows, he said he was sitting out there, he saw them, he described them as one of them having a beard, 
who this guy literally is known as the Bearded Man, which he does have a name. His name uh, later, I believe, was Donald Forrester. He has since passed away, and he described the other man as being clean-shaven and fair-haired. This gentleman is unknown and, and is referred to as the fair-haired man. Now, what he says is he walked up, he was right around there, and he heard a couple guys arguing. He said there was about three people there. And then he says uh, the guy calls him over to the van. He says the bearded man who is in the driver's seat, is kind of slouched down to where the the window, the bottom part of the window of the door there, is kind of covering his face a little bit, and he's wearing a handkerchief. And he tells the kid that he better get on out of there because there's been a lot of reports of vandalism around the area. So this young man and his girlfriend take off. This is the only eyewitness that we have any connection, any connection at all to these suspects. So with the description... That this only eyewitness, who is a 16-year-old kid, gives the police, they do some composite sketches, and they actually go as far as doing 3D clay renditions of these uh, suspects' faces. I'll be perfectly honest with you, they are creepy as fuck, alright? I don't know who did these clay things. Probably a couple kids in high school or something, but they are creepy as shit to look at. I'll post pictures when I post this episode. So they do this, they get some information, alright, they have composite drawings. Well, what happens is, is about a month later, this guy in a bar, now supposedly, the rumor is that this guy's name was Randy Vault. This guy goes into a bar and he starts bragging about how he was involved with these murders. Well, the police catch wind of it, and they bring him in for questioning. He denies it, but he offers up information on a group of guys that literally make their living and are known for robbing fast food restaurants. It's like a little fast food robbery gang, all right? Now, this guy literally passes a polygraph. He says he has no involvement, but he does know who is involved. He does pass a polygraph. Now, if you're a regular listener, you know how I feel about polygraphs. I don't hold them 100%, but this is still pretty interesting, okay? Now, at about this time... He gets this information. There is a detective uh, with the state police that recognizes these composite drawings as a couple of people that he had had run-ins with before that have extensive criminal records. Now, these guys are located in Franklin, Indiana, which was a little bit southeast of where the bodies were found. And ironically enough, it's where my uh, damn sister went to college at. It's Franklin. But he goes to Franklin. Now, these two men, one of which is the bearded man, the other one is referred to as Shotgun because he literally committed some crimes with Shotgun, so that's how he got the nickname. And he is the bearded man's neighbor, okay? Now, these two guys are facing unrelated robbery and firearms charges. Now, this state police detective offers them total immunity as long as they could pass a polygraph. They had to admit that neither one inflicted a killing injury on any one of the victims. Now, they had to admit that. They had to pass a polygraph, and they were offered total immunity. They had to go in for a lineup. These guys didn't say shit 
They didn't take a polygraph. They chose prison and refused to talk about it. Now, it should be known, this bearded man, the state police detective had known him for about five years, and he had always known him to have a full beard. This is really weird because that's at least five years. Hard telling how long he had it before that. He gets pulled in for a lineup. The day before he gets pulled in for a lineup, he shaves his entire beard off. Clean-shaven. No positive identification was made. Guy gets to go. But he's going to fucking prison anyway for unrelated charges. Would you rather go to prison for robbery and firearms charges? Or would you rather go for being involved in a quadruple murder? Which would probably get your ass a death sentence. Yeah. So they refuse to talk about it. Now, the other guy's shotgun, I did not find too much information on him, unfortunately. So we kind of got to leave him by the wayside just for now. So at this point in time, this is what we're looking at. This bearded man, who is known as Donald Forrester, seems to be almost directly involved with this. Fits his crime pattern. And on top of that, several years later, his son comes forward and says that he gave him a deathbed confession before the bearded man, who is Donald Forrester, had passed away, and he admitted his involvement in the crimes. Now, we know how deathbed confessions are. You know, that shit can be give or take. I would love to take that at 100%, but I can't. Now, the original investigator on the case is still on the case to this day, 40 years later. Now, he says he knows who did it, but he just can't prove it. And that's totally understandable, because at this point in time, we have no clear ID, no confession of any kind besides a deathbed confession several years later. We have no physical evidence. Therefore, nobody has been arrested. Now, part of the reason that we don't have any physical evidence is because police did not initially treat the burger chef, as a crime scene. They thought the kids fucking stole the money and took off. They thought the kids stole the money and took off to party for the night, which is just fucking blows my mind. It truly does. Let alone when Jane Freed's car was found, which it was found on the 5500 block of West 15th, which literally is a few blocks away from the fucking police station. Not even taken in for really any kind of evidence. And like I said, I gave you the details of that. The only thing they really pulled out of the car was like, you know, Burger Chef wrappers from food. And which could possibly have fucking been in there for two months. Who knows? I mean, the girl worked there. She probably ate a sandwich every now and then. Okay. But they did pull cigarette butts from the vehicle. So there might be a hint of DNA on those but you know dna does kind of wear down over time so it's hard telling what the fuck they ever did with those which i don't know nothing ever came about them after the initial finding so that's pretty much where we are right now in the timeline now like i had mentioned you have the crime scene that was fucked up you have the finding of the car that was literally blocks away from the police department that was found that's fucked up you have where the bodies were found that was fucked up, not roped off, 
Bodies were moved before a coroner and forensic team could get there. You had vehicles, you had people from three different police agencies tromping around everywhere like a bunch of kids in a fucking bounce house, okay? Now, if that doesn't make you mad, the police chief at the time, guy by the name of Bill Berger, ironically enough, his last name is fucking Berger, he admits that he was not present at either scene, that being where the kidnapping occurred and where the bodies were found. Now, when questioned about the investigation, the way that his officers conducted it, and pretty much just dicking the dog on it, just messing it up completely, he goes on to say that it would be inappropriate to question the work his officers had done, and allowing the business to open without gathering evidence was the right decision. How much does that piss you off? Because it pisses me off a lot, okay? Now, as you know, the bodies were found in a different county. Well, actually, I didn't tell you that. Marion County is the Indianapolis area. Johnson County is south of that. So we cross county lines. That's why we have the state police involved. That's why we have, you know, two separate counties. We have city involved. We got all these different police agencies involved. Now, the officers were not allowed to give statements to the media when the bodies were found, and that was per the Johnson County prosecutor at the time, because Johnson County is where the bodies were found. Now, per the media, the officers are saying, yeah, we're all working together, you know, we're doing what we can, blah, blah, blah. But anonymous officers start coming forward in saying that uh, there's a lack of communication with all these people involved. Nobody's communicating anything. So it's skewing details. It's hurting the investigation because of this. All right? On December 13th, 1978, this letter arrives at the Indianapolis Star newspaper. It was sent from Indianapolis as well. And in this letter, there were six digits okay and uh they the last three digits were 812 these are referred to still to this day as the 812 letters the letter was printed in blue ink on a sheet of paper from a secretary's notebook now this guy is very very interesting whoever wrote this letter is very very interesting because in these letters this person states the names of the alleged murderers, and he gives details of the kidnappings and slayings of the four young people. He said the murders were committed by two people he knew. Both were drug users and had histories of violence. He also gave details, such as the cars that might have been driven, names, and possible addresses. And what he did was he tore a piece of a $1 bill that was involved in that initial robbery and had it as proof in the letter. So even weirder than that, this person, according to the Indianapolis Star newsroom, shows up at the, at the newspaper newsroom, not the police station. Now, I don't know if the newspaper agreed to give him anonymity or you know, said they would never talk to the cops or whatever. But this guy shows up and has all the info. 
names, addresses, vehicles of everybody involved. Now, I think it was kind of like a guilt-ridden thing. What they think is this guy was the third person, and he probably didn't know what was going to what was going to happen. You know, the initial murder. I think he might have thought it was, you know, a robbery or something like that, and it just got out of hand and shit. Okay. Now, the the Indianapolis Star never revealed this guy's identity. All right. Now, there's no real confidentiality laws involving media or the newspaper for that matter and the cops so it's really really weird but this guy literally provides enough information you know without physical evidence but he keeps saying you know these are the people this is what happened here's the names addresses vehicles all that shit so everybody's like well you know where are the 812 letters now you know what? They vanished into thin air. Nobody knows where the fuck they are. All they have is the original printed parts of the letters in the night, the December 13th, 1978 edition of the Indianapolis Star. I do have um, some screenshots from it. If you are interested, I can definitely send them your way. But it's seriously fucking aggravating. Seriously aggravating. Now we're going to kind of, I mean, we're still following the same timeline, all right? But we're kind of going to dip into a little bit of more information before we jump into the facts and theories and shit. So in 1983, a Marion County inmate, which Marion County is uh, Indianapolis, a guy comes forward and says, hey, I was serving time with this guy who claimed responsibility for the murders. The evidence, you know, that he provided was pretty was pretty substantial, but at the end of the day it was inconclusive. And the the inmate who served time with person X, we'll call him person X, said that person X told him that he was a drug enforcer that had gone to collect a debt from one of the employees. Now remember this, this sounds like crazy shit, but just remember this. And he said one of the employees recognized him. One of the other employees recognized him. So they had to kill him. No loose ends. Now, like I said, the evidence was pretty substantial. But it was inconclusive. There was nothing hard other than a bunch of hearsay. So this ended up in a dead end. And they could make no connection whatsoever. Like I said, that happened in 1983. So this is, you know, a few years down the line. So in 1989, okay, this is 11 years after the Burger Chef murders, there's a bunch of other shit going on with crimes. There is what is referred to as the Remington Rape and Attempted Abduction, which happened in Columbus, Indiana. Not sure on the time or the date, not sure of the details because I had enough shit to look into, okay? There's another one of uh, a murder and a rape of a hotel clerk in Elizabethtown, Kentucky that is unsolved. And then there is the I-65 murders, murders and rapes at the Days Inn in Maryville. Okay. Now this guy comes forward and he says, listen, like the bearded guy, I know who this guy is because the suspect fit the same description as the guy who had been involved in the Burger Chef murders. 
Now, this guy comes forward and he says, hey, this bearded guy looks familiar. I'm pretty sure I know who this guy is. This guy just happens to be a delivery driver that drives a route from Chicago to Louisville, Kentucky. Do you know what town is right smack dab in the middle of that route? Speedway fucking Indiana, okay? Along that route as well, if you're going down, you draw a straight line. You have Chicago, Speedway, you have where the bodies were found, and then a little bit south and to the east, you have Franklin, Indiana, where the bearded man was living during the time of the Burger Chef murders. A little bit further south than that is Louisville. So this guy contacts the state police with information. He contacted the Illinois State Police, he contacted the Indiana State Police, and he contacted the Kentucky State Police, all of them. So what he gets is this detective, all right? And I'm not going to say his name in case he's still alive, but we're going to call him Detective J.C. So this Detective J.C. wants to meet with this man. And where I got this information from is a forum. This guy literally lays this out in detail. And it is really, really thought-provoking. Because what he says is, Detective J.C. gets a hold of him. And he meets with him. And he said, they're in the car riding around and Detective J.C. is wanting information. So this guy starts spilling out this information on what he knows about the suspect in the Columbus, Indiana rape and attempted abduction. And also in the I-65 murders and rapes, which was in Maryville. He says Detective J.C. only wanted info on the Burger Chef murders because this anonymous person giving this information says, well, I'm pretty sure this is the same guy. Like, it looks just like him. They said they were riding in the car together and Detective J.C. was tape recording him as he was talking. Now, he says the detective is asking him just regular mundane questions, nothing important. He said he would not ask him about the I-65 murders. He said he was only asking him about what he knew about the Burger Chef murders. You know, this guy is just like, what the fuck? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, I'm trying to give you information on rapes and murders here in two separate places I think the same guy did these and did the Burger Chef murders. So after this little weird encounter with this detective, three days later, a man shows up and approaches this anonymous person. He's driving a green van with bubble windows. And he walks up to this anonymous guy and he keeps asking him, why are you talking about me? Why are you asking about me? Well, this anonymous person swears up and down that the only person that he mentioned this to is this Detective J.C. So this anonymous guy literally goes into all the forums concerning this. And what he's doing is he is literally begging the FBI to investigate this Detective J.C. Because... He feels very strongly that the third person that would have been involved in the Burger Chef murders is possibly a relative 
of this Detective JC. Now, if you think about it, yeah, it's a little far-fetched. But let's think about the investigation. Let's think about what did and did not happen during all matters of this investigation. It's a theory, okay? It's a little weird, but this guy literally gives a lot of detail and is extremely adamant about this. Literally goes into every single form that he can find on this subject, begging the FBI to research this detective and his family. So I guess with that, we're going to probably get off the timeline because really that's all I have solid. Um, and I mean, don't get me wrong, that guy in the forum that posted this story about Detective JC, you know, it could be total bullshit. It could be. But if that story is true, that's pretty eye-opening. So here I'm going to dip into a forum. And this is some information that came up very late in 2016. And uh, we'll call the user BT. BT comes out and he says, and like, we're going to go ahead and float into the theories and hearsay section. Okay, now a lot of this shit is by forum posters, but some of this stuff that they're saying is is very plausible in a scenario, okay? So it does have to be stated. Like I said, this is all hearsay, this is not factual, this is somebody posting in a forum, this person goes by the name, I'm not going to say the full name, we'll call him BT. He says... They had nothing to do with the robbery or murder. It was racially motivated from the get-go. The main robber and killer wanted Jane freed. He asked her out, bought her flowers. She still said no. When he saw her and the, and the black teen kissing because uh, the young Mr. Flemings was an African-American male, he says uh, when he saw her and the black teen kissing him in the car, he lost it and planned the robbery and murder. Indiana Police Department didn't want it to get out that this was all because of race. This is the same time, this is the same time Jim Jones and Guyana genocide happened of many black people poisoned. This was during a time of very bad race relations across the country. Indiana Police Department covered it up. Indianapolis Police Department covered it up for that reason and looked at other robbers to blame. The whole coming to the scene of a restaurant where four people are missing and saying it looks like they took the money and went to party. Allowing police scene to be cleaned. Ask yourself this. Wouldn't they have contacted the teen's relatives and asked them what kind of son or daughter they had? Do, you, do they steal? Do they go to party? No way. The police had let evidence be destroyed unless it was for a good reason to protect one of their own's son. Part of the robbery and murder. Note, they also tossed in a guy named BK, uh, his name in the robbery and murders. They made it to be about drugs or money owed for drugs. He goes on to say, The evidence was lost, but the killers, well most of them, are still alive with their own kids. They have blood evidence from one of the killers as well as DNA as in skin cells, when he plunged the knife twice into Jane's chest and it broke off, he was wounded by the blade, and so actually two of the killers left blood, one of whom was cut by Mark Flemings and the main killer, who wouldn't have Jane romantically, 
So he uh, planned to kill her and her black boyfriend, in which he murdered them both. Mark as a struggle for them all. He was strong and fast and almost got away when he ran, but running with hands tied even in front is hard and it was cold and dark, plus he was already beaten up pretty bad before they caught him again and killed him. They beat him with the motorcycle chain after he tried to escape. They truly wanted Jane and Mark to suffer before they killed them both. I mentioned they took food from the burger chef and drinks. The wrappers were left in Jane's car and around the murder scene with the drink cups. You've got to understand, this was rage killings not truly planned out so well. They didn't think about leaving any DNA back in those days. Three of them wore gloves for fear of leaving fingerprints. The blood they left was enough now to truly use DNA analysis. Yes, three of them have extensive criminal records and had been jailed and in prison. Yes, two of them talked, but only to their parents, and only one of them has one parent still alive, and he is in a nursing home. One other parent was told, but died a few years back, and that is who told someone I know the whole truth of what happened. Being his father is a former Indianapolis Police Department officer, he won't ever talk. I guess in a way... They did get away with a gruesome murder. Who knows, the former cop might, before he died, give a bedside confession. Then that would mean his son would be arrested, but not sure if they could charge him now because it's been so many years unless he copped a plea and told on the others that are still alive. Now I understand you're sitting here like, okay, this fucking guy is full of total shit. Let's think about this for one second, okay? Think about the killings. Mark and Jane were the only two that actually suffered during the killings. The other two were shot execution style multiple times facing away. Jane was stabbed with so much force that the knife handle had broken off. The knife handle has never been found. A lot of people were calling to check the gas tank of her car to see if the knife handle might have been in there. But, of course, they never did. So, there's that. Now, think about Mark. Yeah, maybe he did try to get to run away. Even his friends and, you know, relatives said he was very strong. He was very fast. Very athletic kid. He was beaten pretty fucking badly. Now, they don't know if it's from the escape attempt or from the beating that he got from the suspects. All along during the investigation, cops had said the same thing since the bodies were found, that it does look like he was beat with a chain. They never specify what kind of chain. This guy right here does. Now, if you think about it too, if you're going in a downward motion and your knife handle breaks off, I mean to the point where they had to recover the blade during the autopsy, it's not out of the realm of possibility that that is going to wound somebody's hand, okay? So knowing that little bit of information right there, thinking that there's a possibility this could be race-related and that the cops purposely threw it off the trail to avoid that and possibly cover up a cop's son's involvement. When Donald Forrester came under the spotlight, 
and says, you know, he gave a deathbed confession, blah, blah, blah. He conf- he did confess to the cop, but he admitted that he confessed under pressure from the police. He He only admitted that to a person who he was in prison with because Forrester was serving a 95-year prison term for rape. Now, you should know this. Some of the claims that he said did not check out at all. He led the police to where, you know, he said he helped bury the bloody clothes worn during the murders. There was nothing there. He told police that he threw uh, the the murder weapon in the river. They looked and it wasn't there. Then he said on second thought, the murder weapon was the gun seized from him in the rape case. It was not. Now, there's a lot of people who are wanting some of the guns used by the PD at the time brought into question because it's never really disclosed what caliber that the two were actually shot with. So that should be noted as well. Now, another one of the theories is that this person was somebody who was a regular at the Plainfield Burger Chef. Now, if you remember, Jane had recently transferred from Plainfield to the uh, Speedway Burger Chef, all right? Now, one of the main theories is that because of this, this person was a regular at the Plainfield one. He was uh, involved in a lot of robberies of different Burger Chefs and other fast food restaurants. And when he went to that Burger Chef, because he figured nobody would recognize him, and he walks in and Jane is there, and she recognizes him as a regular from the other store, that's when the initial robbery turns into a kidnapping and murder for fear of identification. Now that does make sense, because think about it. These people literally, like, were in a fucking hurry. They left several hundred dollars in change at the scene of the crime, only taking dollars which were in the safe. The two girls' purses were left behind. Obviously, they were in a hurry. The four employees' coats were still left behind as well. So this was a crime. This was like frantic, okay? Now, remember when I told you about to remember about the guy in 1983 who said he was a drug enforcer and he committed the crimes himself? It was a, you know, jailhouse-type thing, jailhouse-type confession. Well, check this out. Rumor on the street is that Mark Flemons admitted to one of his classmates the day before the abduction that he was kind of paranoid and scared because he owed somebody $7,000 in drug money. Okay, $7,000 in 1978 was a pretty substantial amount of money, okay? And there's actually no hard proof or evidence this is complete hearsay and rumor okay but you should know this there was a palm print lifted from jane freed's car why this is important mark fleming's brother ended up going to prison i don't exactly know when at some point in time though he went to prison on drug related charges now the palm print that was pulled from that car was one of Mark Fleming's brother's friends. 
Okay, so Mark Fleming's brother went to prison for drug-related charges. There's a rumor floating around that Mark owed money for drugs. There's a guy in 1983 who in prison admits that he was a drug enforcer that killed these kids because one of them recognized him and there could be no witnesses. He went to collect money for a drug-related thing. Now, Mark Fleming's brother has a friend. That friend, palm print, was on Jane Freed's car. Kind of odd. Honestly, one of the other theories floating around as well is kind of matches up what that BT user in the forum said as well. That there was a person who was obsessed with Jane. She kept turning this person down. He would buy her flowers. He would ask her out constantly. She kept rejecting him. The thing about it was, like, you know, that user BT had stated, you know, he saw her making out with another guy, whether he was white, black, Asian, purple, green, doesn't fucking matter. It was somebody other than him. It had infuriated him to the point where he wanted to kill them both. He wanted to hurt them both, so he planned that robbery. That does line up with what BT said, whether it was race-related or not. We don't know. But it should be noted the deaths, okay? Like I said, you know, Ruth and Daniel shot execution-style multiple times. Don't know the caliber of the weapon. The other two, on the other hand, it seemed a little bit more personal. Especially Jane. Jane was facing whoever the killer was. And it's really weird, too, because there was one theory out there that said that uh, the stab wounds might have came from the back. Like the person was behind her and stabbing her, reaching around her and stabbing her in the chest that way, which, to be perfectly honest with you, would make a lot of sense with a breaking off of the handle. But this person was obviously, this was a rage killing. Like, her and Mark were rage killings. That Those people wanted them to suffer. Personally, I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, I don't know. It's, it's a really odd case. Um, but I will say this. I, I honestly wish that the police department <laughs> wouldn't have fucked this up so bad. I mean, it's literally fucked up bad enough that you almost believe... That theory about one of the cop's sons being the third person or being the person involved. That would match up with the 812 letters a little bit. The guilty conscience thing. This person was the third person in the vehicle who didn't expect any of this to happen. Or the fourth person for that matter. They believe it was anywhere from two to four people. Personally, I don't see two. I think it was three or four people. Uh, because you have four victims, it would be hard for... You know, any less than that, it'd be hard for two people to keep those four in line, especially Mark being athletic and strong and fast. It would make perfect sense, but, you know, I just really, really wish, you know, the cops would have had their heads not in their asses on the initial kidnapping. This There's a good chance, you know, this could have been solved, especially with the, uh, you know, with the car being found a few blocks away from the police department. It just does not make any sense whatsoever. These four young people do need 
justice. Their families need closure. Ruth's mom has since passed away. Uh, in the audio clips at the beginning, you did hear her talk about that a little bit. You know, it's quiet. It's just, it tears you up. It just makes no sense. You know, I will post pictures of mapped out pinpoints from Google Earth so you can kind of see a visual of where all these occurrences happened. But I suppose other than that, that's really all I got for you tonight. And I'm sorry that this episode was late, like I said, but, uh, you know, I got a bunch of new information right at the last minute. I'm constantly researching up until I hit the record button, so that's how that goes. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed this. I hope you feel like taking it upon yourselves to look into this, because this is a solvable case. You know, the you know there needs to be pressure put on it. There is still an active detective on this case out of Indianapolis. He has been on it from day one and is still on it. So, you know, I find that find that very, very cool that they're still actively um, investigating this case. So, obviously, if, if you have any information, any suspects, I know that investigators are currently trying to find out if anybody who might have worked uh, in the Plainfield Burger Chef in the mid to late 70s, uh, if you would come forward and maybe give any kind of descriptions on regular customers that you might have remembered that stood out from 40 years ago, uh, to give them any information that you might have. And, um, you know, I suppose with that, I will see you on the next episode, which will be a um, big two-parter. It'll be on the uh, life and death of Billy the Kid. Part one will be debunking his life. I will give you the straight facts of why he was an outlaw, who he was, how many people he actually killed, uh, the whole story of his life, and, uh, you know, all factual, none of the myths, none of the movie shit. And then part two will be a look into his death to find out if Brushy Bill Roberts was, in fact, Billy the Kid, and if Billy the Kid or... Or if Billy the Kid really did die at Fort Sumner, uh, shot by Pat Garrett. So, with that being said, I suppose you folks have a good night, and uh, I'll see you on the flip side.